We are in a new series uh, in the book of First Thessalonians. We've uh, titled this series A Word of Encouragement. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Thessalonica to encourage them. And, uh, and so we're coming to it uh, seeking a word of encouragement, that uh, those words were not only for that church, uh, but were for all churches throughout history. Uh, that any group of people who would call themselves a church are to receive this word of encouragement. And so last week we looked at, well, if we're to receive this word, we first must ask and answer the question, are we a church? Are we a church? And so we looked at three things that, that define a church, the, the basics of a church, the fundamentals of a, a church, and that is the gospel comes to a group of people. The gospel comes to a group of people, that the church is not a place, but rather a people, and that gospel has to come to them. And then the second thing that we saw is that the gospel works in a group of people. That the gospel, if the gospel is not working in you, then you have to stop and ask the question, has the gospel come to me? And then the last one is that the gospel goes out from a group of people. The gospel goes out from a group of people that were not called to create these holy huddles, but rather take the gospel to the broken spaces where we live, work, and play. Those are the fundamentals of a church. And so we have to assess ourselves if we are to receive this word of encouragement from Paul. And so this morning we'll be in chapter 2, the first 16 verses. And so if you have a Bible, uh, you can meet me there. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 to 16. Um, just a little bit of context. And so, so Paul plants this church, all right? And then uh, for about three weeks, he's there spending time with people. The church is beginning to grow. It's a young church. But then he has to flee because uh, there's persecution. People want to kill him. They're not excited about what Paul is doing. They're not excited about the gospel. And so he leaves, uh, ends up in Corinth. And then he's hanging out with Silas and Timothy. And he goes, listen, hey, guys, I wonder how the church is doing back in Thessalonica, that young church that we started. And so he sends Timothy back. Timothy goes and he hangs out with the church uh, and then brings back a report to Paul and says, listen, I am deeply encouraged by what the Christians are doing in Thessalonica. Deeply encouraged that even though they're experiencing persecution, they are striving to love God. They're striving to make God known in everything that they are doing. And so Paul is like, that's phenomenal. You know what? Let me write a letter to them. Let me write a letter to them just to encourage them, to, to, to tell them that they should continue this walk. And that in the midst of persecution, they are to continue this walk. That as a young church, that God is up to something in and through them. And so chapter 2, we're going to look at Paul slowly getting personal. He gets personal because this is what's happening. Um, because Paul had to flee, there was a lot of people going, listen, I don't know how legit Paul was. I don't know how legit Paul was because he was only here for three weeks. And yes, he comes with this gospel, the, the good news, but, but how legit is that good news? They were questioning Paul's integrity. They were like, listen, I, I don't know. I don't know if his intentions were pure because he was here and then he's now gone. And I can understand why people were saying that because we saw this last week for people in the, the city of Thessalonica, for them to come to faith, that meant that they had to turn away from their idols. Literal idols, they had to turn away from their idols because back then in that culture, uh, whatever profession you were in, you were part of this union and then this union would sacrifice to idols. And so if you wanted to become a Christian, you would have to turn from those idols, which meant that you had to turn away sometimes from your livelihood, from where you were getting income from. And so now imagine these unions, if they're starting to lose all their, their great leaders because they're saying, we've now given our lives to Jesus. 
And so we can no longer perform these, these acts of sacrifice to these idols. And so obviously now people are going, ah, listen, we're losing good people. Maybe we should question Paul's integrity. We should question this gospel. Is this thing legit? And so Paul says, listen, I know people are starting to do that. They are questioning my integrity, and so let me respond. And so that's where we kick off this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'll read the passage to us, and then I'll pray for us. I'll pray that God would do something more powerful than we could ever imagine right here this very morning. And so hear these words of our Father. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, that our coming to you was not a waste. It was not a waste. I know people out there are going, hey, listen, Paul, is, he, he was here, now he's gone. He's like a, a one-hit wonder. What a waste. And he says, no, guys, it wasn't. It wasn't in vain. Our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conf- conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext of greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men but what it really is the word of god which is at work in you believers for you brothers became imitators of the churches of god in christ jesus that are in judea for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the jews who killed both the lord jesus and prophets and drove us out and displeased god and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the gentiles that they might be saved So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is rich and relevant and that it it continues to have an impact today in our time. Father, we ask that you would meet us where we are, that you would soften our hearts, that your word would land on fertile soil. I pray against any distractions here this morning. And so it's to that end that I ask that you would stand in my body, think through my mind, speak through my mouth, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Father, you are our Redeemer. You are our King. Would you show us this morning our desperate need for you? In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Paul, he, he starts this chapter by saying, guys, I'm not a conman. I'm not a conman. I'm not a one-hit wonder. I, I didn't come so that I might line my pockets. That was not my intention when I came to proclaim the gospel to you. 
and our visit was not a failure. It was not a failure. There was this massive attack on Paul's integrity, on his motives for doing ministry. And so he felt, necessary, he felt that he had to address them. He addresses them and says, listen, my motives were pure. My intentions were pure. Paul says that they were not looking for praise or no looking for money. See, Paul hits what I believe are the two greatest motivators for doing anything. He says, I wasn't looking for praise and I wasn't looking to make money. These are two, two great motivators for, for doing anything. The approval of others. We want people to think well of us. And so we'll do the craziest things. Do you know how crazy that is? We will do the craziest things so that people would, would like us. And sometimes it's people that we don't even like. The approval of others. Greed. To accumulate stuff. So we'll hang out with certain groups of people because we're like, listen, if I'm in that space, then, then they can connect me to, to this network and so that I can get uh, this title and, and this amount of money. Sadly, that's what motivates us. And so Paul says, listen, I'm going to address those two because that's what people are saying. I'm going to address those two. And so verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext of greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. He says, listen, I didn't come here to seek your approval. We didn't come to, to, to please man, but we came to please God. And so he, he nips it in the bud. Can, can I say that? Is that an expression? To nip it in the bud. And it's not inappropriate. Okay, cool, because I like it. Um, if it was, I was going to be like, Carla, you need to delete that from the audio somehow. But, but he nips it in the bud. He says, listen, I didn't come here for the approval of men, but I came for the approval of God. He addresses it. But then he also addresses the possible motivation for greed. If we jump to verse 9, he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. While we proclaimed to you the gospel of God, you are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you. Now, this is interesting because Paul could have easily said, No, 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 because we are proclaiming the gospel then as the church, as those who call themselves believers, you are to, to give to the work of proclaiming the gospel. It's clear he talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, where Paul says, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. He could have easily said that. He could have said, listen, I'm here to proclaim the gospel. And if you've crossed the line of faith, if you call yourself a Christian, then you are to give to the work for the proclaiming, for the proclaiming of the gospel. But he doesn't, because he, he knows he knows that in the city there were some issues. People were skeptical. Maybe there had been some people who had come through with, with their form of the good news, but it was only to line their pockets. Not only was that true then, it's true today. It's true today that there are so many people who start churches 
But their intentions are only to line their pockets, to make money, to steal from those that they call their members. And so Paul's like, I don't want, I don't want me coming here to be a hindrance. And so what did they do? They, they worked night and day. They labored night and day. How crazy is that? They would wake up early in the morning to go work so that they could spend the whole day proclaiming the gospel and then at night they would go work again. Because they didn't want to be a hindrance to the people in Thessalonica. For the sake of the gospel, they were like, you know what, it's not going to be about money. And the hope was maybe somewhere down the line where you guys, as you grow in the gospel, as the gospel works in you, you'd go, you know what, we'd love to give for the furthering of God's kingdom. But he says, I want to give you time. I want to give you time. We try to do that. Here at Rooted, we try to do that. Because I, I know the realities. I know the spaces that we're in. There's almost a church on every single corner. And, and people walk in wondering, like, man, is this, is this a sham? Are they after my money? And so when we planted Rooted, we're like, listen, we don't want to be a hindrance. We don't want that doubt to, to live here. And so we raise funds. We raise funds hoping that it'll carry us for three, four years. And as the gospel begins to work, as the gospel begins to work, that we might be able together, together say, you know what, I think our intentions are pure. Our motives are pure. I want to give for the work of the gospel. We're not here trying to line our pockets. We're not here trying to create this money scheme. We're here to proclaim the gospel and to see it work in the lives of people. If Paul wasn't doing it for money or approval, then then why do it? Why do it? He tells us he was doing it for the Lord, seeking the Lord's approval. He was doing it to please God who tests his heart. God tests his heart. He wasn't seeking to please men. See, the changing of our behavior is doable. The changing of our behavior is doable. The changing of our motives or intentions, that's hard. And so we can show up here and be like, you know what, I guess to be a Christian means I've got to do X, Y, Z, so I'll change my behavior. And some of you might get it right, but it'll only be for a season. Because you haven't changed the motive of why you do what you do. So changing of behavior is doable, but the changing of our hearts, that's hard. That requires a supernatural work. It requires a supernatural work. Ezekiel 36 verse 26 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What Ezekiel is saying is, listen, all of us, we have a heart of stone. Each and every one of us. And that heart always chooses self. Always. Always. It'll always choose self. No matter how you try to play it, no matter how you try to trick yourself and go, you know, actually, no, it's for, no, at the end of it, it's self. And so Ezekiel says, no, we need a heart transplant. It's not about changing our behavior. We need a heart transplant. Removing our heart of stone so that we might be given a heart of flesh. That's the gospel. That's what the gospel does. 
when we get a heart transplant, it's Jesus saying, I'm going to give you my heart. I'm going to give you my heart so that you might change, so that you might truly change. This is a supernatural work. This work had happened in Paul's heart, and so that's why he was able to say, listen, I'm not here for your approval. I'm not here to line up my own pockets. I'm here because God sent me. I want to please him. I want to glorify him. It's about him. And I can say that because my heart's changed. But just to prove it to you, I want to show you Paul's point of reference. On both these issues, the approval of man and the issue of greed, I want to show you Paul's point of reference. And so if we go back to verse 2, he says, But though we have already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God. Not boldness in ourselves, not our own strength or our own wisdom. It's like, no, 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 no. This comes from God to declare to you the gospel of God, not our gospel. Guys, let me be honest. I'm often tempted to to give you my gospel, what I think will help, what I think is the solution. Think about it. When, When we look out to this broken world, to this broken city with everything that's happening now, so many of us will come and go, you know what, man, if they just applied my plan, my ideas, then we'll see change. And we may, but it'll always be temporary. Always. No matter how good the legislation is, no matter how amazing the Constitution is, it'll always be temporary. It's because we need the gospel of God. In verse 4, he says, just as we've been approved by God. His point of reference is God. To be entrusted with the gospel, so we, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God. God is the witness. Paul's point of reference was God. Let's look at verse 9 where we talk about greed. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that, you might not, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. God is at the center of everything that Paul is about. His entire ministry is centered around God. You are witnesses and God also. We have to ask this question when we are doing ministry. Are our motives pure? Are we doing it because, man, how cool is it going to be if people hear about what we're doing and being a transcultural church? This is amazing. People are going to love us. Is that our motivation? Or is it because, no, we want to glorify God? It's about Him and His glory and His kingdom. And so Paul debunks this whole issue that his, his intentions were wrong. He says, no, my intentions were pure. My intentions were pure. Bit of a side note. Um, this is not in my notes. This one's for free. If you can go back a slide. Go back a slide. There we go. I, I, I just thought about it as I was reading, verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. 
Paul is saying we had every right to show up and be like, hey, listen, we've been appointed by God as apostles, and so therefore you should listen to us. But he doesn't do that. That's not his style of leadership. How many of us lead that way? It's like, oh, no, 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 look at my title. So because of my title, you have to listen to me. That's not, that's not real leadership. That's not servant leadership. John C. Maxwell, he writes a lot of books on leadership, and I, and I love him. In one of his books, I think it's The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership, uh, he talks about uh, if you are a leader, if you have this vision and, and you're trying to lead people to it, you better make sure that you have people behind you. Because if you turn around and there's no one behind you, you're merely taking a walk. I love that. But I know some of us, we sit here and we go, man, then according to John C. Maxwell, I'm an incredible leader. Because look at all these people that report to me at work. See, there's a difference. There's a difference between people going, listen, I'm going to follow you because I want to, not because I have to. And because we know that, that's why we, we throw the title. This is who I am. Listen to what I have to say. Instead of just serving. Instead of just serving. So that when, when people do find out that, no, so-and-so is the CEO, you go, makes sense. Didn't know that, but it makes sense. Because of the way he or she leads. With incredible Humility. That's how Paul came to the city of Thessalonica with incredible humility, with this great gospel, but he comes with humility. He says, I am no different from you. Once upon a time, I was also in the dark, in desperate need of a savior. My intentions are pure. So if Paul didn't come seeking approval, if he didn't come seeking money, then how did he come? How did he come? He came in biblical love. His motives were saturated in biblical love. I use the word biblical or the words biblical love because I feel like today we, we don't truly understand what love means. And so we have to go back to the Bible. And so biblical love is like a double barrel gun. It's one trigger, but it shoots two bullets. It's like a double barrel gun. Biblical love comes with compassion and with truth. Compassion and with truth. We, we see that here, compassion, when Paul says in verse 7, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Have you ever seen a nursing mother? The grace, the compassion that's there. You're trying to, to nurse this child who sometimes doesn't want to. You can get quickly frustrated and be like, you know what, if only you just listened. What is wrong with you? must be patient and gracious. You love with compassion. And so Paul says, that's how we came. That's how we came because we, we know that you guys are still wrestling with sin. Many of you have crossed the line of faith, but you continue to run back to the idol, hoping that it will give you life. You keep doing those things that you said, I'm not going to do anymore. 
Ah, I've repented. I'm not going to do it tomorrow. And then what happens tomorrow? But he comes with grace. He comes with grace. A grace that understands. It's okay. Let's get back up again. He still loves you. He still wants you. Compassion. But the other side of that is truth. And I think sometimes what we do is we just give so much compassion, there's like zero truth. Zero truth. I showed you the illustration uh, with my wife last week. How amazing was that? I was like, if you miss church, then shame on you. Um, where, Where God initiates, this act of salvation, God initiates. And so we're on the other side of the room trying to fix ourselves. And then God takes those steps towards us. And then he embraces us with his grace. He covers us with his grace. But he doesn't leave us there. See, many of us, we tend to think that his embrace also means his endorsement. He endorses the sin that I continue to live in. Because he has his arms wrapped around me, yeah, I can continue to do whatever I want to do. But that's not what he does. He draws us to himself. He wants us to become more and more like him. And so so this biblical love is both compassionate but truthful. Look in verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I love this word, exhorted. Exhorted or exhortation comes from the Greek word paraklesis which means to call to one's side, to summon, to encourage, to admonish. To admonish, to rebuke. But sometimes it gets uncomfortable. The truth is uncomfortable, especially when we don't want it. And we do that all the time. I believe that we've become incredibly lazy when coming to God's word. Incredibly lazy. This is what we'll do. We'll, we'll open it up. We'll read a truth and then we'll go, man, that's just really hard to understand. And so, because it's really hard to understand, I- I'm just not going to live it. I'm just not going to live it. That's what we do. Or we'll read it and we'll go, I get what it means, but gosh, that's really, God, are you really asking me to do that? Ah... Maybe it was just for them in that time, and it doesn't necessarily apply in 2016. We do that all the time. And so we want to live in His grace, but we don't want His truth because it's uncomfortable. But biblical love, it's like a double-barrel gun. You can't get the one without the other. He will not leave you in your sin. What is that sin that you're living in that you you just don't want to believe that God is saying that that's not the way you should be living? Is it gossip? Is it the pursuit of success over pursuing Him? Is it your sex life? Ooh, it just got real, didn't it? 
we'll tell ourselves that. It's like, man, that's what the standard that God is calling me to. That's just way too. It was. It, he actually meant. So often I sit with people, and this is what I hear when we talk about God's truth. I feel. I feel that God, or, or, or I think, I think that God, and, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't approach the text that way. I, I say this time and time again that we're to ferociously ask the scriptures questions. And so you should feel and you should think. But at some point, if you've crossed the line of faith, at some point you've got to go, but what does God say? What does God say? And then begin to ask or, or begin to pray and say, you know what, God, um, this is really uncomfortable for me to believe. But help me. Help me. We've become incredibly lazy when coming to the text. God's love is both compassionate and full of truth. And so Paul says, listen, my, my motives were pure. I didn't come for your approval. I didn't come, I'm going to say some hard things. I didn't come for your approval. But I come with grace. Because that's how Jesus came to me. With incredible grace. So Paul, if your motives are pure, if your motives are saturated in biblical love, what then? What then? It's what we see in verse 13 to 16, that that God will use our genuine motives, our authentic motives to further his kingdom. That's what God will do. It's not about how gifted you are. It's not about how much money you have, like how, how influential you are. He will use your genuine motives to further his kingdom. We see it in verse 13 when he continues to give uh, more thanksgiving to this church. On top of what we saw last week, he's so thankful for what God is doing in the church in Thessalonica. Verse 13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, remember, the gospel comes to a group of people. So when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it, what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. The gospel works in a group of people. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. The gospel goes out from a group of people. That we're imitating other churches that were going, listen, if we are the church then we are to display this to others, just as the church in Judea was displaying it to us. We are to display it to others. God will use genuine motives to further his kingdom. So Paul's confidence in the word of God wasn't a matter of wishful thinking or blind faith. He could see that it was effectively working in those who believed. God's word works. It doesn't only bring information God's word is not just information, but there's supernatural power in his word that changes lives. It changes lives. The act of salvation is a miracle. So many of us were always looking for that, that, that miracle out there, failing to see that the very act of salvation is a miracle because it requires supernatural strength that comes from the word. 
but not only salvation, but the work of sanctification. That we are being progressively changed, becoming more and more like Jesus. That itself is a miracle. That we're not left in our sin. We're becoming more and more like Him. And so my hope is that that the Word of God would never become so common to us that we forget that. That the Word of God would never become so common to us that it's like, oh, it's just that book that we read. It transforms lives. How do I know that? I'll use myself as an illustration. God saves me. That is an act of salvation, a miracle. But sanctification in my life is a miracle as well. When I look at my wife and I, and just uh, when we look at our families and, the, and how marriage is conducted, we can sometimes fail to see that this marriage that God is at work in is a miracle. It is a miracle. Think about your own lives. Where would you have been? Where would you have been? God's word is at work bringing supernatural power not only to save but to sanctify so that we become more and more like him. But we see another reason that shows that God uses genuine motives to further his kingdom. Verse 14 to 16. The Thessalonians welcomed suffering. Now this is crazy. They welcomed suffering. Because we get told that, listen, if you come to Jesus, man, life is going to be great. It's going to be incredible. Health, wealth, and prosperity. That's not what life is like. Yes, God saves you and he gives you eternal life. But we still live in a broken world. And so there's tons of suffering. And I know many of you experience that, especially at this time of the year. It just feels like um, this, this furnace called life turns up the heat. It feels like you have no way to run. It's like, what on earth is going on? And some might even wonder, has this gospel failed me? But Paul says, no, listen, I, I know that the gospel has come. Because you guys welcome suffering. Verse 14, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. For you suffered the same things. That's what Paul says, you suffered the same things, that you are not alone. That's, I think, an encouraging word for us, that we are not alone. We're not alone. I can tell you story after story after story of those who've gone before us who have suffered the same things. You think this economic recession thing is a brand new thing? You think the struggles in your marriage are a brand new thing and only you experience them? The pain of losing someone? Paul says, be encouraged that you're not alone. That many have gone before you and they have suffered and they are 
people who are suffering now, there, there are many churches that are suffering. You suffer together. Together. Anchoring yourself in the gospel. Longing for the coming of Jesus again. Suffer together. But then he tells us that not only did the prophet suffer, but Jesus himself suffered. The ultimate example. He also suffered. I love that about Jesus. He will never call us to do something that he's not willing to do himself. He will never. That's why we can run to him. Because he understands. He understands. And so Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, stand firm. Not only are other churches suffering, not only did the prophets suffer, but Jesus himself suffered. And so you can anchor yourself on that. But he goes on to tell them why. Why the suffering? By hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So also to fill up the measure of their own sin. See, a lot of the, the Jews were persecuting the church in Thessalonica because they were going, listen, um, how can these Gentiles become Christians? How can Jesus accept them? If they want to become Christians, then, then they first need to become like us, the Jews. And so Paul was coming in with the gospel and saying, no, it's not about that. It's not about where you grew up. It's not about where you went to school, where you live. Why? Because all of us are in desperate need of a Savior. Each and every one of us. That's how this, this gospel unites us that way. It unites us that way. We all suffer. And all of us are in desperate need of a Savior. But then he finishes up. He says, but wrath has come upon them at last. Paul comforted the Thessalonians by assuring them that God would indeed take care of their persecutors. That is not our responsibility. Those who will persecute the church, we are not to respond with persecution. But we're rather to say, you know what, God, you are in control. You are in charge. And so we're going to trust you. Because here's the thing, when Christians forget this, we often dishonor our own faith. When we return persecution for persecution, we no longer live in light of the gospel. And so Paul says, I know you're going through a tough time, and I know people are going to say some things about you. But don't return it with evil. Leave that to God. Leave that to God. Romans 12 Verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I will repay. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. God will use our genuine motives to further His kingdom, even in the midst of persecution. Even when it feels like, man, nothing's happening. When we look to the heavens and we go, God, where are you? We're called to persevere. Persevere. Keep going. And so as we seek to be the church, Paul reminds us that we must ask God to search our hearts to ensure that our motives are pure. 
Again, remember, if we are to receive a word of encouragement from this letter, we first must ask and answer the question, are we the church? And one of the things that we do is we ask God to search our hearts. Are my motives motives pure? Are my intentions pure? We must ask God to give us a biblical love, one that is both gracious and truthful. Give us a biblical love. Let that drive us. So that even in the face of trials and persecution, we will know that God will use our genuine motives to further His kingdom. He will use our genuine motives to further His kingdom. We don't have to have everything together. You don't have to have everything together. And that's why it's okay to show up here on a Sunday and be like, I'm not okay. Rooted has got to be a place where it's okay to not be okay. God, would you search my heart? I want to know you. I want to glorify you. And you'd be surprised how God will use your messed up life to further his kingdom. Because your heart's in the right place. Because you're driven by a biblical love that's saturated in compassion and truth. And that even in the midst of persecution, you can stand. You can stand. Paul tells the church in Thessalonica to press on. He says, young church, press on. Keep going. Keep going. I believe Paul is saying that to us. Rooted fellowship. You're a young church plant. Press on. Keep going. Keep your eyes on me, the author and perfecter of your faith. Difficult times are ahead, but press on. And as you do that, search your heart. Search your heart. Let's pray. And so, Father, we, we come asking that you would do that. In fact, Scripture tells us that we're to cry out to you that you would search our hearts. I found myself this very week having to search my own heart. Why do this? Why plant a church? Why gather with people? And I ask that you would shine your light in the areas of darkness where the the reasons are because I want my name to be up in lights. I want people to remember us. Father, I ask that that would not be the case, that it would be about you, that we would be remembered as men and women who were always found at the foot of the cross, crying out to others and saying that there's so much room so much more room, pleading that people would turn away from their idols and turn to you. And so would our motives be pure? Father, may they be driven by a love that is saturated in you. Jesus, how you walked the earth, engaging with the broken, showing grace, being compassionate, but at the same time speaking truth. Help us to be those people. Help us to be the church. And so, Father, we, we love you.
we praise you. And even as we transition now into communion, it's a reminder. It's a reminder of this great sacrifice that you made for us. The heart transplant that was required. That our hearts of stone might become hearts of flesh. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.